One year ago, the U.S. military, under orders from the White House, allowed the Taliban to retake control of Afghanistan. The withdrawal was poorly planned. The evacuation of Americans and American allies was chaotic. And for some, including 13 American service members, fatal. A year later, what's the status of Afghanistan? What's the status of the Taliban's ally, al-Qaeda? What lessons have we learned? What lessons have we not learned? I'm Cliff May, and joining me today are General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to the President, who serves as Chairman of the Board of Advisors at FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. Also with us, Brad Bowman, Senior Director of the Center, and Bill Roggio, FDD's Senior Fellow and Editor of FDD's Long War Journal. I'm glad you're joining us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Well, welcome, and uh, it's good to have you all. And uh, look, just to, to provide some context, I'm going to start by noting that a year ago, This week, you, General McMaster, and you, Brad Bowman, published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. And here's the lead, which is the word we use in the news business for the first sentence. The world is witnessing in Afghanistan a vivid and painful display of what happens when leaders in Washington delude themselves regarding persistent threats, the nature of America's enemies, and the ability to end wars by simply going home. Boy, I got to say that analysis uh, holds up well. But I'm sorry to say that, but it really does. To make this into a question, I'm going to add this, and then I'll go to you, General McMaster. David Ignatius, longtime columnist for the Washington Post, this week said that, in hindsight, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, he said he called it a good decision, horribly executed. I think all of us here, maybe, I don't know, I think would agree that it was horribly executed. That's hard to dispute. Thousands of Afghans rushed to Kabul's airport. U.S. troops prepared to leave. There were people clinging to the aircraft and falling to their deaths. There were a suicide bomber detonated 20 pounds of explosives near the perimeter, killing 13 troops, as I mentioned, 170 others. 1,450 children were evacuated without their parents. So I think horribly executed is a fair summary. But, gentlemen, would you quarrel with the first clause? Was the decision to withdraw a good decision? Did we need to get out to, quote, end this endless war? No, it was a terrible decision, Cliff. And, and you know, uh, thanks for the opportunity to be with you and to be with with Bill and, and Brad. I mean, the work that FDD does is so freaking important, you know, and I I'll tell you, if anybody hasn't listened to Generation Jihad podcast, or if, if you haven't gone back to the annals and, and the predictions that were so clear in the Long War Journal, I think, I mean, I think your listeners ought to, ought to do that. Because, you know, this was, 
this was this was not only you know predictable; it was predicted that this that this would happen. Uh, this being the the return of Afghanistan to a terrorist organization, and we know from the from the great work that Bill and others have done that terrorist organizations get orders of magnitude more dangerous when they control territory and populations and resources, and they have a haven in which they can plan, prepare. You know, and and uh, attacks and recruit people, and and of course, this is a huge psychological boost for terrorist organizations because you know they they control the caliphate now, right? This is part of the this is the beginning uh, of the larger caliphate that they want to establish, and and we saw this with ISIS, right? When ISIS gained control of territory the size of Great Britain, uh, they immediately recruited about forty thousand you know uh, people to the to to the to their jihadist terrorist cause so i think we're entering a very dangerous period you know and and um and and i just think that you know that, that we won't know for many many years you know that, not to quote mao zedong right but remember when he was asked about the french revolution he said it's too early to tell was that mao or was that show and lie i just oh uh, man, well, maybe it was show and lie yeah. i think it was show and lie um brad okay you first of all do you agree with hr on that and let's and also take this hypothetical. Let's suppose, okay, I'd like to hear what you think about whether we should have left or whether we should have stayed and what it would mean to stay and why. And I really do want to hear points of view on that. But I but I'm also curious of this. If we left Afghanistan in the wrong way, and if you had decided, and a lot of people thought this probably, you know, thought we should leave, was there a right way to leave Afghanistan? And what would that have been? I'm asking you a lot, Brad, but cherry pick the question. Well, thanks, Cliff. I, I, um, uh, General McMaster said it so well, it's difficult to improve upon that. But I, I think when you're when you're analyzing things like this, not for the purpose of pointing partisan fingers, but for the purpose of learning lessons so we stop making the same mistakes over and over again, informed by self-delusion, as we wrote in that piece, I think you, you got to approach it in an analytical way, in an organized way, and, and, and separating the policy decision from implementation, I think, gives us a little bit more nuanced understanding. I, I think of the 2011 withdrawal from Iraq, right? I think that was a policy disaster based on self-delusion, starting to sound familiar, um, that that Biden applauded as being implemented beautifully by then General Austin. So, you know, I think generally, generally speaking, the operational tactical withdrawal was well conducted. But it was a foolish policy and strategic decision, which was proven a short time later when in 2014, we had to send troops back at a, at a greater cost because we catalyzed a series of events that led to the ISIS caliphate. And, that- and I should point out, we should point out, it led to the rise of the, of the ISIS caliphate and it opened the door for the Islamic Republic of Iran to come back with Shia militias, which they had used already to kill Americans and to in- exert influence. In other words, to benefit from the war we fought in Iraq, we gave Iran that possibility, extending that empire. Just want to point that out. No, it's a good point. And we know that one of the number one objectives of the Islamic Republic of Iran is to get American forces out of the region so that they can have their way uh, with with their neighbors. Um, And so I completely agree. Moving back to Afghanistan, I think it was a policy disaster based on self-delusion, as General McMaster has spoken about and written about in his book, Battlegrounds. And it was also horribly implemented. Um, And uh, when I say that, though, I want to hasten to add that the service members that were put in horrible positions 
uh, performed so bravely and admirably, uh, but they should have never been in the situation that we put them in. And I, I believe leaders in Washington did a great disservice with a horrible policy decision, horribly implemented, and the people that paid the price, as always, are our service members. And Bill, let me go to you for a second on this. Um, Biden deserves a lot of blame for this. I think the bulk of the blame, but I think you would argue, I think I've heard you argue, that Trump deserves blame and Obama deserves blame on this too. You want to, you do, is, am I characterizing your thoughts properly? And correct me if I'm not or elaborate if I am. I could not agree more with General McMaster and Brad. This was a policy disaster and it's one that we're going to pay for for years to come. I'm confident of that. I don't think we need to wait and see. Afghanistan was a bipartisan policy disaster. As soon as President Obama decided the policy was to leave Afghanistan, which he called the good war, everything was put in motion to leave. The entire bureaucracy moved towards that direction. We started doing things like saying the Taliban wasn't our enemy, the Taliban, we could negotiate with them, they're pragmatic, they're going to break ties with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban-Al-Qaeda ties are weak or non-existent, Al-Qaeda has no presence in Afghanistan. So these were the lies that they told us in order to leave Afghanistan, and, and everything flowed from that within three successive administrations. President Biden gave us a false choice when he announced the withdrawal. He said, we have, we have two choices. We could leave. We could abide by the deal, that bad deal that President Trump made with the Taliban, or we would have to stay and we would have to increase forces and fight. But that's not true. There was another option here. There was a third way. And I understand the frustration with the American public and policymakers with Afghanistan, given how horribly mismanaged the war was over two decades. But that isn't a reason to take your ball and go home. If we were going to leave, we needed to leave in a responsible manner that gave the Afghans that were willing to fight the Taliban a fighting chance. And we didn't. From the date of the announced withdrawal up until the actual day that the last American left Afghanistan was three and a half months. We shut the, literally turned the lights off at Bagram Air Base. I believe it was July 4th. Uh, so it was what, two months after the withdrawal was announced and didn't even tell the Afghans we were on our way out the door that we were closing up shop. It's interesting. I did a panel at Hudson and there was an Afghan politician who actually confirmed this the first time I heard this. I was talking to Afghan decision makers, advisors to the presidents, ambassadors of foreign countries, members of the interior and defense departments and the NDS. This was before Trump signed the deal, after Trump signed the deal, before Biden was elected and after Biden was elected, and even days and weeks after Biden announced the withdrawal. I told them, you need to consolidate your lines. You're going to have to give up parts of the country that you can't defend. You're going to have to reorganize in your military, in your government, in order to survive, defend Kabul, retake key areas in the north. To a man, the answer to this was, I've been assured by members of the State Department or Defense Department or the CIA or even administration officials or American politicians that the U.S. wouldn't leave. Afghans told me this up until about a month before the end. They just they never internalized the fact that the U.S. was leaving. We needed to show them that we were leaving, but leaving at a pace that would allow them to reorganize and give them the support. The Afghans needed particularly their air force and their commandos. Their military needed U.S. maintenance, and we needed to set up bases in the north. We couldn't just turn off the lights and leave the country and expect the Afghans to fight. There was a responsible way to leave Afghanistan, but this administration gave us a false choice. And uh, that, that's what led to the collapse. 
In general, I, my assumption is it would take a few years to really wean the Afghan military off of the U.S., although I'm not sure you should do that. I mean, there's a reason we still have troops in Germany, still have troops in Japan, still have, tw- I think, 28,000 troops in South Korea. I mean, when you go into a country like this and a region, and it's an important region, the Indo-Pacific, it's you know, oh, Afghanistan, it's a backwater. But as you pointed out, loads of terrorist groups around, Indo-Pacific, China is on the border, Bagram Air Force, good asset, lots of reasons to say, no, let's figure out what we need to stay there. And maybe you can't take the whole country. But anyhow, give what's your perspective on this? Maybe you can say what you what you recommended and what you and what you understood to be the the, the proper approach to 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 Afghanistan after after twenty close to twenty years when you were well, in office. Well, Bill, Bill makes a, a really important point that that this is this was presented as a false dilemma between a an American war, a costly war, uh, and and complete withdrawal. When in fact the Afghans were bearing the brunt of the fight, uh, they were taking all the casualties, really, except for a few American servicemen and women. Every death, of course, in, co- in combat is a is a tragedy and, and terrible. Uh, but, but we had to have thirteen deaths in in in, 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 in over a year, right? Right, which was more than we had in the in the past the previous year, few years. And 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 I think what what. Uh, what we I owe it to our our fellow servicemen and women who make the ultimate sacrifice is to do our best to achieve an outcome that's worthy of the sacrifices that they've made, and 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 we failed to do that because of this false dilemma. Okay, what what if it was ten thousand troops? Right, you saw this, you know, the State Department spokesman who was extremely good at just lying to the American people. I mean, we're all the fact checkers now that were around during the Trump administration. You know, howling <laughs> up the lies. I mean it. It's extraordinary to me that, it, again, he doubled down on this idea that it would be a massive war. Uh, and he said that we could not have sustained it with a small advisory force. Well, we were sustaining the effort. And what that advisory force also does is it, it bolsters the Afghan forces psychologically. And I would say it's even worse than what Bill depicted. Toward the end, uh, ever since the, the Trump administration surrendered to the Taliban in February of 2020, and then going into the Biden administration, we delivered psychological blow after psychological blow to the Afghan government and security forces, not including them in the negotiations. You know, withdrawing our support, as Bill said, you know, our, our, our air support, our intelligence support, our maintenance and logistics support. How about forcing them to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous criminals on earth? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and essentially, I think what we did is we actually partnered with the Taliban against the Afghan government and, and, and security forces. We began to pa- paint the Afghan government as the problem. And I'll tell you, I've seen this. This is almost a weird version of, of Stockholm syndrome, you know, in, in which analysts in, in, in our intelligence agencies would write these, these, these papers that were almost sympathetic to the Taliban as if they were some romantic rural movement. You know, that just emerged from the mountains. Hey, this is a transnational terrorist organization that is interconnected with multiple other terrorist organizations, including Al Qaeda, and is really the 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 uh, a product of state support from Pakistan's ISI, right? And and so we we created the enemy we would have preferred to have in Afghanistan. The first paper I got on Afghanistan when I was National Security Advisor, I wrote on the top of it in big black sharpie. Did we outsource this paper to the Taliban? I mean, I, it, it, it was it was crazy the, the way we become delusional. I want to, and let me follow up on with this. We we shouldn't forget, I think, but you tell me if I'm wrong, that there were also NATO 
troops there. There was something like, what, 6,000? Those those troops were not without value as well. So that adds to that. They're not going to do everything that we can do, but they had a value there. And by the two things, one is that meant that would, we, with, with them there and we, and we there, there are things we could accomplish, but we also did not properly warn them, here's what we're going to do and you're on and, your and, and from you better a, watch your- And from a burden sharing perspective, right, the, the cost was going to go down to about $22 billion a year, right? That might sound like a lot, but as Bill revealed to me when I, when I listened to Generation Jihad, our over-the-horizon center that we've established – uh, in 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 gutter, it, it cost nineteen point two billion dollars. But just think about what we got for that that assistance to the Afghans. We got access uh, to in, in extraordinary intelligence networks. We had the ability to employ Afghan forces mainly against not only the the Taliban but ISIS and other jihadist terrorist organizations on a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. And and uh, and it was worth that cost. Think about what it cost just for the evacuation. Think about what it's costing now to resettle the Afghans who we who we can resettle or we have been able to resettle uh, here in the United States because they they lost their ability to live freely in their own country. Think about the cost to the Afghan people themselves from a humanitarian perspective and to to Afghan women in particular. So I, I think when we look at the cost of it, again, we talked ourselves into defeat with the endless wars mantra. One more question for you, H.A., to the extent you can tell us. How did President Trump understand who the Taliban are and what they represented? I mean, there was one point to which he was going to have them to Camp David, and I and, I, and he was yeah, advised was, out of doing that. That was long after uh, I was gone. Yeah, I was long after. I know. Well, he didn't say. At least it wasn't Mar-a-Lago for golf because that I think that would have been a mistake because they they. Fred, I'd have paid Fred, money Fred, to see that. Guys can, None of those oh, guys are good as a driver, other, and their short game is. Very okay, I would, Bill, I'd love for you and Brad to comment on this, but this is another crazy misconception about the nature of the war. So the president would, would have people in his ear, as you imagine, he should talk to a range of people. I think that's good, but but some of the people you talk to is like you know the Taliban are the best fighters, you know they're you know they're, they they've always they, they've always uh, you know prevailed you know in, 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 obviously against. Uh, you know, against the, the Soviet occupation from 1980 to 1988 or, you know, or in the Civil War from 92 to 96. And, and so people were telling him this, you know, the Taliban are kind of invincible, you know, and and uh, and and Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, that narrative, which which completely misrepresented the nature of the war where we were fighting with Afghans a- against uh, jihadist terrorists who do not represent Afghan culture. I mean, Afghan culture, you know, was really based in Sufism. Uh, and, and and portions of the, of the Afghan population were radicalized because really the support to Mujahideen militias that had a lot of Saudi support uh, and and a lot of Pakistani Naqshbandi um, you know uh, su- support from the Pakistanis and, and so it, it, we we talked ourselves into this idea you know that we were an occupying force. I mean I, I think that I think the Taliban are now occupying Afghanistan. Uh, with you know, because they're a proxy for the Pakistanis and and jihadist terrorist groups broadly. And, and people should know when you talk about Sufism, Sufism, I would argue, and this is I'm simplifying, is a is has become a very fairly moderate uh, interpretation of Islam. That's you know that that's why when you say it's Sufism, you're saying okay, these are not bad guys, they're not crazy jihadis, right? It's that's that's what it's you're a very tolerant uh, strain of Islam. And of course, you know, it, it's you know, there are many different. Uh, types of, of Islam practiced uh, inside of uh, you know inside yeah. of Afghanistan, 
but but Sufism was was predominant historically, you know, and and this is you know the you know the some of the great you know the great uh, you know Dari and Persian language poets came from Afghanistan, and of course you know we we're not even talking about like the Hazara population, right? Who was a you know who was a who was a Shia population? So you know right. Afghanistan is crazy quilt, right? Of of ethnicities and and religious sects, you know, it doesn't. And the Taliban are a minority. I mean, remember you know, the, U, the UN did these polls for years, Bill. I forget the numbers, but I don't think support for the Taliban ever was higher than five or six percent. Yeah, well, the, the support for the Taliban is quite low, but it unfortunately had just enough, you know, and it was the most vicious faction. On your point about the Taliban being, they certainly weren't invincible. They trained themselves up to be what I would describe as being Afghan good enough. They were good enough to take on the Afghan military and they, you know, go toe to toe with them. But when we were there by the Afghan sides, providing the combat enablers, the Afghans generally prevailed. Even when the deal was signed, the Taliban never really fully controlled more than about one sixth of the country. And, and, and it's arguable how much of that they actually controlled. So, yeah, they were not unbeatable. I, I couldn't agree with you anymore, HR. We talked ourselves into defeat. I've seen analysts out there. There was an analyst who literally wrote last summer. He was an advisor to both uh, General Miley, Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff, and General Miller, who was the top commander in Afghanistan. He said, you know, we never really got the Taliban. We didn't understand how deep their religious motivations were. We just thought they were pragmatic. We never understood our enemy. Again, these are the lies we tell ourselves in order to get out of Afghanistan. And Brad, I, I want to bring you in here. You served in Afghanistan. And one thing that I know you have some comments on, on what you just heard, but I also want to, the Taliban never took a major population center until we withdrew, as, as my understanding. They were always in the deep countryside. In the population centers, did we not achieve something and in the sense that people who were free, there was media, women could go to school, they could have jobs. I mean, I'm, I think people think we never achieved anything there. But I'm not sure that's right. What's your view on that, Brad? Uh, thanks, Cliff. You know, on the uh, on the population, well, and, and when I was served in Afghanistan, I, I, were, I had the honor to work for General McMaster, so he has a far more distinguished record there than I do, of course. But um, on the population center versus the rural thing, I'd love to hear Bill comment on that because he documented that all, the whole time and sounded the alarm early about how foolish it was to ignore the rural areas because they were building up the capabilities in the rural areas around the cities to take the cities at the right moment. And he he, he documented that very carefully. A quick comment on that. On the, on the women's rights issue, Cliff, you know, in some ways my heart kind of breaks when I see some of the news reports I think about who served and sacrificed far more than I did in Afghanistan. And, and when, I, when I hear that, I, I want to say to every one who's had a family member pay the ultimate sacrifice there or came with, back with scars, seen or unseen, is that they, for 20 years, prevented our, our country from uh, enduring another 9-11 attack. And that's something to be proud of. We also gave the Afghan people a breath of freedom, particularly in Kabul, uh, that they did not enjoy. And, and women's rights were, were they never experienced such women's rights in the history of Afghanistan, except during those 20 year periods. And that's why I get a little frustrated when I hear uh, politicians now saying, oh, what about what about humanitarian conditions in Afghanistan? What about human rights? The very same people that were using the endless war talking points at, at town hall meetings, it's like, give me a break. You were warned this would happen. You knew it was happening. You called for the withdrawal, and now you're going to bemoan the result that you knew you were told was going to happen. And I and I wrote about that in NBC News, and I, I just think that's a little bit of the uh, maybe cynicism we see in Washington. Real quickly on um, on numbers, I, I think uh, General McMaster and Bill and Ucliff know these well, but just for the listeners, 
you know, was this or was this not sustainable? Let's talk about some military numbers real quick, okay? When President Biden assumed office in January of 2021, we had no more than 8,000 U.S. troops there. Okay. By the time, uh, we, by the time of, uh, of the, the months right before the withdrawal, we were well below that. What is that compared to? Like, you know, so people don't do this full time. You know, what do I make of, you know, that three to 4,000 number? So how do I compare that? Well, we had a max of 170,000 U.S. troops in Iraq in 2007. We had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan in 2011. We had two to three, two to 4,000 in Afghanistan right before the withdrawal. And then here's the one that really drives the point home. After the January 6th insurrection, we had 26,000, 26,000 members of the National Guard on Capitol Hill, 26,000 on Capitol Hill, roughly three to 4,000 in Afghanistan. And what were we getting for that? Preventing another 9-11, the, the list goes on and on. And talk about what we call an economy of force contribution that yields major grand strategic benefits for our country. So if anyone tells you this was not sustainable, oh, we have to leave to go work on China, that is just not fact-based in my view. The Taliban did actually overrun a couple of cities, uh, Ghazni, Farah, and Kunduz City actually twice between 2015 and 2017. They held on to them for a couple of weeks. I believe these were more trial runs. This happened once the U.S. pulled back and began to train, advise, and assist mission. But yeah, the, the Taliban strategy was really important. And this was, again, something that was being ignored. The top general, General Miller, endorsed the strategy of protecting the population centers and letting the rural areas go. And I created a map, and that's what everyone saw last summer when the country was falling. Uh, I started that in 2014 because I recognized that weakness. I was reading what the Taliban was writing in English, by the way, on Voice of Jihad, their official website. And they would interview commanders uh, of provinces and, and uh, provincial governors or their shadow governors, shadow military commanders. And they would say things like, yeah, this is great. We um, will hang out in the rural areas. We'll get our forces ready. We'll equip and we'll meet you in the population centers. And this is exactly what happened. And yet top U.S. officials were set, were telling us that this population centric strategy is working and this is working as planned. Um, again, another lie we told ourselves to tell us everything was going greatly great in Afghanistan. I just want to clear up one quick point. When I'm saying the third way of getting the Afghans to fight for themselves, I actually agree. The U.S. should have kept a presence there. But if the decision was made that we weren't going to, to stay there, so actually there would have been four ways, right? The U.S. could have continued a presence there and, and tried to fix the problems. Or if we, if the, the plan was we do want to pull our forces out, we needed to leave something behind. We needed to co walk the Afghans to the point, hey, it may not have worked. They might have collapsed in three, four or five years, but we at least given them a fighting chance, which is what we're seeing now. We're seeing a nascent resistance building up in, in central Afghanistan, central northern Afghanistan, um, which I'm beginning to track. And it's quite interesting to watch. The Afghans want to fight the Taliban. They don't want to live under the yoke of the Taliban. Can, can, I, can, I, add, can I add one point? It's, it's so important. You know, just to, to highlight the the inconsistency in our strategies and how we're actually working against ourselves in terms of what we're doing militarily and what we're trying to achieve politically and diplomatically. It's really important to recognize that in 2009, President Obama increased our, our troop uh, our troop level in, in, in Afghanistan, reinforced the security effort, and at the same time, announced the timeline for our withdrawal. And then we reversed that during the Trump administration, President Trump did in August of 2017, where he, when he, when he took off the timeline. 
he redesignated the Taliban as an enemy. I think it's really important to, to note as well, we were no longer actively pursuing the Taliban. We were only responding to them once they initiated attacks. Now, hey, I'm a cavalry the true, you know, officer, right? And hey, the first thing that's the first thing you 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 learn is you gain and maintain contact with the enemy, right? And you conduct continuous reconnaissance, right? And you have to be actively pursuing the enemy. You don't let allow the enemy to gain control of territory around cities and then attack at you know at the, at the time and place of, of of their choosing. And then at the same time as we announce the withdrawal. We're not pursuing the Taliban. Uh, we opened up the Taliban political commission in Doha, Gutter, to, to negotiate with them after we told them we're leaving, right? And then, with the, then, the, then the Trump administration later reversed uh, the, the South Asia strategy, which was announced in August of 2017. I think the only time we had a reasoned and sustainable and sound uh, strategy in place for Afghanistan, and did the same damn thing. Did the same thing. The Taliban ability to control and contest districts during that short period of time actually was halted, and and. Went back a little bit once. So it showed once we we maintain contact with the Taliban, I started to see it. And I was like, wow, it looks like we're making a little progress. And then all of a sudden he decides to open negotiations again. And then it started going the other way, going south again. You know, the, 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 the bottom line is you want, you know, whether it's, whether it's the Taliban or any enemy force, you want them to be more worried about their own ass than they are about what they're going to do to you. Right. And the only way you, the only way you do that is if by being active. Uh, and and pursuing them, you know. I, I want to get your comments. There's, there's a report from um, Michael McCall. He's the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, and it's a very highly critical. It's a report highly critical of, of Biden and his advisors. Among other things, he says that at least 800 Americans were left behind enemy lines. Um, he says that um, that the, the chaotic withdrawal um, also was against the advice of military leaders, against the advice of U.S. diplomatic officials operating in the ground, against the advice of international uh, allies, um, and that U.S. trained Afghan military personnel after we left fled to Iran, including U.S. trained Afghan commandos, who you have to figure are going to have no choice but to reveal everything they know to the Tehran regime. There were only 15 consular officers at the Kabul airport when the country fell on August 15th, only 36 in total throughout the entirety of the, evacu- the evacuation. I mean, he, he's he got a lot. Of, now, it's interesting. I, I, I want to note, there is no, you would think after something like this, there would be a congressional hearing and an investigation. We have January 6th has been going on a very long time. There is none because the, the Democratic majority has decided, no, we don't want to do that. Should them, I think should the Republicans come back into, into power, on the, at least on the House side, uh, after the fall, then you may see this. But he, that's why he put this out by himself. There, there, there was a hearing in the House. Hmm. I participated in one of those hearings. So, so that's, you, that's something you could take a look at. Uh, but but there wasn't I, I don't think there was a report really rendered after that. There's a commission that's been established mm. uh, that, that has not yet begun its work to look into the lessons of, of Afghanistan from it's it's initiated. It's been initiated on the Hill. But I, I don't know what the, what the what the current status of that is. Right now, by the way, I should also note that there was a response from the National Security Council to this uh, to McCall's and saying, basically, this is partisan. You're all wrong. We had no choice. We had to follow the Trump uh, outline. He had made a deal. We, we, we couldn't. Of course, Carl Rove says, my goodness, you couldn't jeopardize a, a Trump policy. I think there are others that you have 
rejected since you came to office. Anyway, I just wanted to get anybody's thoughts that they might have on on either McCall or on the uh, the, the uh, National Security Council response to the McCall report. I'm going to comment really quickly on the National Security Council response because I think this is the the most um, relevant rebuttal. The the Biden administration turned um, or uh, reversed Trump's policy of withdrawing troops from Somalia and returned U.S. troops to Somalia. So why is it that we had to end the endless war in Afghanistan, but reinitiate the endless war in Afghanistan or um, in, in Somalia? Um, and again, I'm putting endless wars in quotes, right? I'm, I'm using that. Well, by the way, it, just, just to, it is used in the in the rebuttal. I mean, just to be a quote, it said the, that the, re, the Republican report is riddled with inaccurate characterization, cherry picked information and false claims. It advocates for endless war and for sending more troops to Afghanistan. And it ignores the impact of the flawed deal that former President Trump struck with the Taliban. That's often. And, and so to my point, right, we reinitiate a so-called endless war in Somalia. And he, um, you know, they, the claim in Afghanistan, well, the, the National Security Council, by the way, that thing reads like an eighth grader wrote his an excuse note um, <laughs> from school. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely awful. I mean, I, I summarize, summarize it as this blame Trump. I mean, I stopped counting after 15 the number of times Trump's using that the Biden administration needs to take responsibility for its policy in Afghanistan. But. Uh, yeah, this the, the the argument is, is that it had no choice but to enforce the uh, the Trump policy, the Trump deal. But it just did it just made the choice in Somalia to reverse a po- Trump policy. So they they're just wholly inconsistent. And I'll say, Bill, maybe you say more about this, too. Like, look at what the Taliban was doing at this time. Right. I mean, they, they were they were attacking maternity hospitals. They were killing pregnant women and infants. I mean, they were conduct, conducting mass murder attacks with uh, truck bombs. I mean, who who wasn't adhering to the you know to to, to the agreement? You know, it was it was the Taliban. Yeah, the agreement was always garbage. I that I don't even like you know that that thing. I've signed car loans that were longer, three and a half, three and a third pages, and there's like ten sentences where it reads somewhat like this: "The Taliban, which calls itself the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, but we don't recognize it as such." That takes up almost a half a page <laughs> of the three and a third page document. It's it, it's not worth the paper it was written on, um, or the paper it was printed on. Bill has documented this as well as anybody, but I mean the um, the the Trump administration's deal with the Taliban. I mean it was so damaging in so many ways, and one of the main ways it was damaging, in my view, was the way it sidelined the Afghan government. Right totally undercut them and delayed the day when we might be able to sustainably depart from Afghanistan. And in part two of that agreement, if you look at it, where we we suggested that the Taliban was going to break with Al-Qaeda. I mean, that was a joke at the time. And, and, and history has proven that to be a joke. And so, you know, my bottom line in, in this kind of dueling uh, thing between the Republicans and, and the Biden administration White House is that, as Bill said already, this was a bipartisan failure. And anyone who's who's willing to be objective, I think, has to admit that both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have plenty of blame. And if we're just doing the partisan game, then I think we're concealing the truth that it was a bipartisan failure and that we're delaying the day when we're going to learn the lessons we need to learn to prevent this from happening again. A lot, there's a lot of things I want to get on to, so I will. We can keep the answers tight if you can, but I, I, I should mention this. In the David Ignatius column, what the Washington Post, important columnist, important newspaper, 
And and Bill, I know you're sitting down. That's good. I hope there are no sharp objects because because one of the things he says in this column is nobody predicted that the Afghan army would suddenly collapse, and perhaps nobody could have. You say, and of course you predicted it, and you were not you were not alone in predicting it. There were plenty of people making that assessment. But I mean, the idea that I don't understand how Ignatius would not understand that that prediction was that of course. People could have made it and did make it. Yeah, look, nobody wishes they were they were wrong more than everyone here on this podcast. We all wish we were seriously wrong about what, what was to happen, but we knew it was coming. And, you know, this is just, you know, Ignatius is, you know, in my opinion, just, you know, part of the 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 Washington cover up for a failed policy. It's lots of, you know, en- enough people predicted this. Um, you know, even General McKenzie and he, came and out. He, but we, Bill, we, we actually helped precipitate it. I mean, that's what, you yeah. know, I mean, actually, we were actively helping bring it about, you know. And hey, one of the things, hey, one of the things I keep hearing, Bill and, and Brad and Cliff is, hey, well, you know, the, the Afghan government was corrupt. You know, Ghani was, you know, not a really good president. Hey, do you prefer Haibatullah Akinzada? Right. Right. I mean, all you, all you need to know about that guy is that he talked his teenage son uh, into committing mass murder by suicide. Right. I mean, who do you prefer? I mean, who would you rather have as Minister of Interior? I mean, do, do you like Sirach Khani? You handing out passports to, to terrorists? I mean, it's just it's crazy. Sorry. I, sorry for that. It, it, no, it's it, it's it's 100. <laughs> that's, you know, as bad as Ghani was, you know, we, we forget that we foisted Ghani on the Afghan people. Right. The elections didn't go through well. And we forced the Afghans to have an agreement between him and Abdullah Abdullah, uh, you know, we foisted Hamid Karzai. This gets back to the decades of failure. We created a government system that was not suited to the Afghan people, and it caused problems like this. I want to make a really quick point about the negotiations with the with the Taliban without the Afghan government. One of the things, one of the Taliban's criticism of the Afghan government was, and these are put all these words in quotes. This is what they called the Afghan government: stooge of the West, puppets, uh, impotent. I could go on and on. These are all of the things. And then the U.S. signs a deal with the Taliban without consulting with the Afghan government. What does that make the Afghan government? A puppet, a stooge, an impotent. I mean, we created the conditions for this over the course of, of, of years and decades. And when I see Ignatius say something like, well, who could have foreseen this? Of course, we, we could foresee this coming. And it was the writing was on the wall all the time. All right. Credit to Biden for this. Earlier this month, a Hellfire missile eliminated Ayman al-Zawi. Um, Al-Zawiri was uh, in Kabul. Um, he was he has he he has been running Al-Qaeda all this time. Uh, I don't think most people know this. I know you guys do that. He has actually been doing a rather good job in the sense that Al-Qaeda is in more countries and probably has more territory than before. It's a, he had a different approach to it. It's very powerful in Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, various other places. But more important question for you guys is the elimination of Al-Qaeda's chief. What's the lesson? Is the lesson that whether he leaves the power back, vacuum, bad guys fill it, or is a lesson that, oh, Biden's right, that we can assert um, our, our power from a distance over the horizon, is the phrase, without boots on the ground or even nearby, so the terrorism threat is uh, is manageable. Who wants to take that? Show me a hand. But yes, I, Brad, I'm, you do. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear from the <laughs> oh, two distinguished gentlemen, but I, I have opinions <laughs> on some of this. You know, so I, there's a lot of straw man fallacies being set up on both sides of this partisan uh, point, finger pointing. 
And one of the more troubling to me is the one that's coming from the Biden administration suggesting that one strike in 11 months that, that is absolutely laudable and we're all safer because Zawahiri's dead proves that over the horizon works. I never said that I recall, no one that I respect ever said that the United States military can't conduct a strike and take out someone. Of course we can. The argument that we made, including people like David Kilcullen in our December 2020 defending Ford monograph, is that when you don't have Ford position military forces, your ISR quality drops, you know less about what the bad guys are doing, and you're slower to respond. That was the argument, and it's all true. So I'm so glad that Zawahiri is dead. I applaud the President Biden and his team for giving the green light to this attack. But what I hope listeners are asking themselves is who else came to Kabul? Who else came to Afghanistan after we left? And what have they been doing? And do we really believe that one strike in 11 months is going to do what General McMaster said and is having them more worried about what's going to hit them from the skies than planning, plotting and launching attacks against us and our allies? And Bill, there's also something in Afghanistan now called ice. ISIS-K, right? And this is a a different terror. Well, this is a terrorist group that comes out of the Islamic State, which was deprived of its territory and its caliphate, but still exists in other forms and actually is spreading also in Africa and various places. Maybe just give us, again, just very briefly, a word or two on on ISIS-K. Sure. I'm going to make a really quick comment on on Brad's uh, statement on Zawahiri. Couldn't agree more. We need to keep in mind he's been alive for he was alive for 21 years after 9-11, 11 years at the helm of Al Qaeda. Um, And I'd like to challenge people who what president, vice president, cabinet member or general was in office or in military command on 9-11 that is currently existing today. Terrorist leaders like Zawahiri. They don't retire. They don't get a, a cushy uh, board position and, and play golf. They either die in counterterrorism operations or die of old age. So he uh, he had a pretty good run considering he was one of the most wanted men on the world in the world. Um, the Islamic State's Khorasan province is uh, it's made up of uh, essentially disaffected Taliban, Afghan and Pakistan Taliban leaders, some members, former members of Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups. It is really a tertiary player inside of Afghanistan. It doesn't really pose an external threat because it's focused on survival. Just as we were, uh, we were discussing earlier, right? When you're being pursued, it really, really cuts down your ability to be effective. The Islamic State is being pursued by the Taliban. They're enemies because the Islamic State isn't in with the Taliban project and vice versa. The Islamic State demands fealty to its caliph. Um, and anyone who doesn't do it is their enemy. So to me, the Islamic State is always a less danger enemy, dangerous enemy than al-Qaeda. The Islamic State doesn't play with others. It won't accept state, state sponsorship. In Afghanistan, it doesn't have safe havens, whereas the Taliban-al-Qaeda nexus is far stronger. The Taliban control the apparatus of a state with billions of dollars of U.S. weapons left behind and bases and, and helicopters and you name it. They um, have two state sponsors, one primary one being Pakistan, the secondary one being Iran. Iran played a significant role in the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, and they have the Taliban, Al-Qaeda alliance. They have a lot of regional um, terrorist groups and global terrorist groups that support them. And uh, yeah, so the Islamic State, it's there. It's a threat, but it's really a threat to the Taliban and to the Afghan civilian population and less of a threat to the West. I don't I just a group like the Islamic State is, you know, 
by jihadist standards and this, you know, putting in perspective, they're far too extreme for your average um, jihadist, for your average Taliban. They just won't gain much traction in Afghanistan. McMaster, you have you do two um, podcasts that I listen to regularly, one Battleground and one uh, Good Goodfellows, both great. Recently, you interviewed, I can't, I can't remember his name, an, an, an Af- a former Afghan official. Who Not was very smart. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And maybe on that base, just tell what what is going on inside Afghanistan today? How bad is it? And perhaps, you know, what should be American policy towards Afghanistan? There's a humanitarian crisis there. Something like 95 percent of the country is going hungry at this point because the Taliban. And is the Taliban learning anything? Is it becoming more pragmatic or is it so theological slash ideological that all it can do is what what it what it is doing, which is tell girls to stay at home, stay covered up, and uh, ask for money from the so-called international donor community. Yeah, Cl- Cliff, uh, it's a, it's a humanitarian catastrophe in Afghanistan, and it's not going to get better under the Taliban. The Taliban are the cause of the humanitarian catastrophe, and this is what's so hard is that you, you, the only way that we should provide humanitarian assistance is is if we can guarantee that it doesn't strengthen the Taliban's grip on power because. That's the primary cause of the hell that the, the that the that the Afghan people are, are, are living through right now. Uh, one of the things that was disappointing to me, and, and Bill reported on this first, I didn't had to even I had missed it, uh, is that is that a, you know, a State Department spokesman said we're not going to support any Afghan opposition groups, any any opposition to the Taliban. I think that's a, a huge mistake. And you know, just I don't know if this was made public or not, but just last week uh, there was a meeting. Of some of the usual suspects, which may not be good for Afghanistan either, but the old warlords got kind of got together uh, to to you know to reorganize some kind of a resistance movement. Um, I, I think we ought we ought to we ought to think about do, doing this because you know this is this would be a humanitarian operation in itself is, is to try to free Afghanistan parts of Afghanistan from the Taliban. You know, as the, as the disastrous evacuation was happening, I had the opportunity to talk with some some uh, senior officials. They said, "Well, what would you do?" And so I'd expand the perimeter immediately and reopen Bagram. But that would take more forces. Yeah, of course it would. But we wouldn't leave hundreds of Americans behind and those who had assisted us. And then what would you do? Well, then how about connecting Bagram to the Panjshir Valley and, and declaring that a, a no-fly zone and a safe haven, a humanitarian place for us to provide humanitarian support? And, and it's, I think it's important to, to, to recognize that it was at that time that Amrullah Saleh uh, was, was organizing a resistance effort in the, in the Panjshir. What defeated him? What defeated him were Taliban forces supported by Pakistani drones, right? I mean, I mean, so this idea that the Taliban is just some you know rural movement is ridiculous. So I, I think you know we've just been deluding ourselves for so long. Maybe it's time to stop the delusion. Recognize you know that we have these dialogues with the Taliban, right? We have these useful idiots who go in there. And engage, and engage with them and think, wow, I just talked to a really rational Taliban guy. You know, the, I forget the guy's name who's the main liaison with the with the with the international press. I mean, he's a complete charlatan. Right. I mean, you have to look at the reality. But there are some also very courageous investigative reporters in, uh, in Afghanistan. And there's there's a uh, there, there's a BBC special that's going to come out called Taliban Undercover. And it's it's going to blow a lot, a lot of people away uh, because you're going to see the utter brutality. Uh, they went into a women's prison. Where women have been imprisoned for for no for no reason other than maybe they weren't wearing, you know, uh, wearing the hijab and and they're beaten and, and tortured and I mean I I mean we we don't even we don't know what's going on frankly 
Uh, and and you know, Bill knows that without 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 a presence there, we don't know what the Taliban's doing from a, a military perspective or with terrorist organizations either. I'm thinking of the Shorebach Farm uh, raid in December 2015, I think it was, where we accidentally uncovered you know the largest uh, Al Qaeda training base we had ever seen, completely administered and guarded by and run by the Taliban. You know, so yeah. while, while we were, we were in, country, in country, this is what was happening. So it's been a year since the U.S. withdrawal or capitulation. Uh, a lot's happened. Uh, Putin in Russia, in, of course, invaded uh, Ukraine. Uh, Xi Jinping has been getting very bellicose regarding Taiwan, um, Khomeini uh, in Iran. Here's what I want to just have a little discussion of, Brad. To what extent... Was America's withdrawal and capitulation to the Taliban an influence on the thinking of people like Putin, like Xi, like Khamenei? Did they not think, you know, if the Taliban can beat the U.S., well, then so can we. Uh, thanks, Cliff. It's a great question that I've, I've spent some time contemplating. Of course, I don't know for sure what's in the head of Vladimir Putin. I wouldn't pretend to know. Um, but, you know, the dates, let's start with the dates. The dates are interesting, right? The, the horrible, catastrophic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, occurred in August. Uh, and then Putin's uh, uh, latest unprovoked war of choice invasion of Ukraine was on February 24th. Um, he, of course, was watching the headlines. He was, of course, seeing the pictures from Kabul airport. And I would guess without evidence, but I would uh, make an educated guess that what he saw there confirmed for him uh, a perception that this administration lacked the political will to do what was necessary to secure core U.S. interest. And so he may have already, there was lots of evidence to suggest that Putin was planning on some sort of major invasion or, or military action in Ukraine early last year. Um, uh, I have good reason to believe there were there were indications and warnings early last year that he was going to do something major in Ukraine. Of course, Secretary of State Blinken was sounding the alarm publicly in that October November timeframe, and I've been critical of the Biden administration for losing valuable time from November to January in terms of doing what we need to do in Ukraine. So the invasion may have been coming anyways. But when I think when 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 Moscow and Beijing, Tehran and Pyongyang look at what we happen in Afghanistan, I think um, they might walk away with, uh, I fear, with the conclusion that that we lacked the fortitude or backbone to do what was necessary to secure our interests. And, you know, that might sound kind of touchy-feely, but when we use terms like deterrence, which have real meaning behind them, you know, deterrence, you know, it's convincing your adversary that they can't accomplish their objective at all or at a reasonable cost. And that's their two primary components that one is military capability and the other is political will. So when you see something like you see at Kabul in August, that affects perceptions of political will. And those perceptions don't stay in one particular country or region. It's a global perception that all of our adversaries and yes, our allies are watching too. And I think it has an impact. It's hard to measure, but just because it's hard to measure doesn't mean it's not true. I'm going to ask one more specific question, and then I'd ask each of you to think of anything else that you want to say that because I that you point you wanted to make, but I didn't ask the right question, or you want to emphasize the specific question. I'll go to you, General. Who has the most influence right now in Afghanistan? Is it Pakistan? Is it Qatar? Is it China? Do we know? 
Hey, so there are a number of malign actors who are jockeying for position in Afghanistan. The Chinese see Afghanistan as an opportunity to extend their influence in, into into Central Asia, uh, and and uh, and to you know, to to uh, uh, to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as a, a place where they can extract minerals, for example. Not least you know, for the, the not Russians least for solar and wind energy that we are tra- in the process of transitioning to into the Biden administration. Let me point out they will they have about eighty five percent of the uh, of the of the critical minerals necessary for the for these kinds of technologies. Right. And, and, and yeah. battery manufacturing as well. Exactly. And, and, uh, and of course, Pakistan thinks, thinks that they won, you know, uh, the, the war. And, and, uh, and you, you had, you know, Imran Khan before he was thrown out uh, by the Pakistani army, you know, and announced that, that Afghanistan has been, has been liberated. Right. So that should give us no illusions about, about the Pakistani army and, and, and where they are. Iran has, had been jockeying for info. All these countries have been jockeying for influence, including the, the Russians. Uh, you know, years before this this uh, this this disastrous withdrawal and capitulation, um, but but I, I think it, it, Afghanistan still is, is a contested area for influence, and uh, and it, it is an important part of Central Asia uh, because of its border with uh, with Pakistan, uh, and and because of of the minerals that it that it contains. You know, so I I think that um, it's it's yet to be seen. You know, who the Taliban will establish the closest relationships with. Uh, but but I would imagine it's it is it is the you know those that, that are in opposition to us right Iran, uh, Pakistan, uh, China, and Russia. All right, final thoughts from you, Bill, and final thoughts from Brad, and then while they're talking HR, anything last that you you think you want to either say or emphasize, Bill, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to touch on that last question. To me, the 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 biggest winner in Afghanistan is also the biggest loser, and that is Pakistan. Pakistan has always viewed Afghanistan as is what it calls strategic depth. Um, it, it, it seeks to limit Indian influence on its uh, Western border. Um, and it also views it as a rear area in case India invades. It views it as a, uh, you know, a, a, a pool for fighters in case it has to fight India. The problem is, is, is that the same people that Pakistan supports that would be the Afghan Taliban supports a group called the Pakistani Taliban, which hates the Pakistani state and wants the same thing in Pakistan that the Afghan Taliban have in Afghanistan. Um, we, the, my colleague Tom Jocelyn and I, we call this the, the wheel of jihad. So Pakistan supports the Afghan Taliban. The Afghan Taliban supports the Pakistani Taliban. The Pakistani Taliban attacks the Pakistani state and so on. And it goes. Pakistan allows this to happen because it views strategic depth to be far more important than it's suffering the pinprick. I put this in quotes of tens of thousands of its soldiers and citizens being killed by Pakistani Taliban terrorists, which often are Afghan Taliban. Do they just switch uniforms crossing the borders? Um, so Pakistan believes it's one. Um, I think, you know, it, it, it's learned that it could use jihadism, jihadism as a, as a, a tool of foreign policy, but that may come back to bite it sooner than later. We'll see. But in the short term, it certainly is a victory for Pakistan. Um, but uh, and, and to a lesser extent, Iran as well is another big winner. Iran has oh, disliked U.S. presence on its eastern border. That was a major reason for its support of the Taliban and Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups. So they're, they're the two big and obvious winners. But, you know, given the nature of Afghanistan, they may wind up being losers in the end. Brad. 
Uh, it's been a real honor to join you and John McMaster and Bill on this. I, you know, I, I, um, I, I think the vast majority of people in the, in the national security establishment broadly defined in D.C. right now are spending most of their time focused on China and Russia. And I think there are good reasons for that. I think the Chinese Communist Party by far is the number one threat we confront because of its hostile ideology, huge economy and increasingly capable military. Um, but it's it's that truth and the desire to focus more attention and resources on it, which I support which has led to bad decisions elsewhere, including in the Middle East. We want to downsize the Middle East because resources are finite so that we can focus them on other more significant threats. But to do that effectively, we have to tell ourselves the truth and stop the self-delusion. And the truth is there are still terrorists who want to kill us like they did on 9-11. And if we don't keep pressure on them there, they will kill us here. And that's the fundamental insight that President Biden didn't understand when he said on August 20th, 2021, what interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with Al-Qaeda gone? Al-Qaeda was not gone, is not gone, and we better wake up if we want to protect ourselves. HR, any final thoughts from you? Hey, Cliff, I'd just like to say that to all of our servicemen and women who served in Afghanistan, as well as our courageous diplomats and other government officials, uh, you know, that I know it's painful for them to, to have witnessed this, this collapse over the over the last year, but but I think they ought to be proud of themselves and, and proud of what their fellow servicemen and women, especially those who made the ultimate sacrifice, achieved. Because you can see today in the hell that is Afghanistan what they prevented from happening uh, for over 20 years. You can see that they did give a, a generation a, a glimpse of uh, of what they could enjoy if they, in, in a free society. Uh, and and uh, and they gave you know, women in, in that country an opportunity to see uh, what they could achieve if they enjoyed their rights. Uh, I, I believe that that we have, you know, we, we have sown the seeds uh, for what will ultimately over time be a positive outcome in, in Afghanistan. It didn't have to be this way. Uh, but for but for those who are looking at the world today, I think I think we have to recognize that it is a more dangerous place. We need our servicemen and women more than ever. And and for those you know who who are willing to serve, I would ask you to please join our armed forces because we need you. And and I think also because you will find it a tremendously rewarding experience. I think we learned from Afghanistan that American warriors are both warriors and humanitarians. Wow. Those are all spot on points, General. And so to conclude, let me thank you, General, for your service over the decades in the military in the previous administration where you gave wise advice, whether it was taken or not. Uh, thanks, Brad and Bill, for all you're doing. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for this conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us, rate us, write us, share with your wonky friends. If you don't have any wonky friends, get some. What's your problem? I'm Cliff May. I look forward to talking with you again here soon on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.